Lessons of Solomon, chapter 8. Chapter 8, as we finish now this amazing little book here. It's about unquenchable love. Unquenchable love. We left off with Solomon complimenting his wife's body last week in chapter 7 and assuring her that she was still attractive to him after years of marriage, telling her again that she was the only woman in the world for him in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And then she gave him a romantic response in verse 9 through verse 13 of chapter 7 by saying, Come, my love, let us get away and spend some time together. In chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, she says, I will give you my love. I have some new delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. Now here in chapter 8, she says something strange at the very high point of her romantic response to Solomon. In verses 1 through 4, Mrs. Solomon is doing the speaking. So let's look at the first first, uh, two verses of chapter 8. And she says, speaking about Solomon, her husband, she says, Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. In the New Living Translation, it sounds like this. Oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. Then I could kiss you no matter who was watching. Nobody would criticize me. And I would bring you to my childhood home. And there you would teach me. And I would give you spiced wine to drink, my sweet pomegranate wine. Then in verses uh, 3 through 4, she now is going to speak to, uh, Mrs. Solomon is going to speak to her maid servants. Notice verses 3 and 4. It says, To his, le- his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, those were her maidservants, do not stir up nor awaken love, awaken love until it pleases. This is what it uh, sounds like in the New Living Translation. Your left arm would be under my head, and your right arm would embrace me. Promise me, O women of Israel, not to awaken love until the time is right. She was saying how she wished she could let the world know that they, that is her and uh, King Solomon, were in love. How she wanted to kiss him in public. How she wanted to demonstrate her love for him wherever they went. You see, she, she, she wanted to tell the world that, that they were in love. She wants their intimacy and love to be shown publicly. That's what she's saying in verses 1 and 2. Now, I'm not saying that when you go to restaurants or a movie, you sit there and you make out. All right? That's, that's not what I'm saying. Now, that's not what she's saying, basically. Uh, there's a time and a place for that. But there should be such a passion in your marriage that you'd both like there to be no off-limits to your lovemaking. All right, Solomon's wife had a 24-hour love for him. And what she meant here is that, Solomon's, that in Solomon's day, a sister could openly show her affection to her father or brother, and it wouldn't be frowned on. But in this day, if they were married and they showed any affection in public, that was considered sexual. 
And her desire to show public affection led her to desire for intimacy in private. Again, according to verse 2, what she's saying to her husband is, you are really going to enjoy it. She's not shy about letting her husband know how excited she is about giving him her love and how much she's going to enjoy it. And when she uses the term spiced wine in verse 2, it means that she'll be so desirable that he'll become intoxicated with her love and desire for him. And this verse is an expression of her sexuality like juices and fruits for him to enjoy. Solomon's wife awaits this beautiful sexual time with her husband. And she literally invites him to enjoy what she has to offer him and promises to respond creatively to all his desires and his needs. In chapter 2, verse 6, she said this, Your left arm would be under my head and your right arm would embrace me. You see, he looks right at her. And with his right hand, he caresses her body. And this is, again, a picture of sex from God's point of view. Specific and intimate, filled with pleasure and enjoyment. But with these words, these encouraging sexual words of pleasure, there are also warnings about premarital and extramarital sex. God's word encourages sexual pleasure. God created it for a husband and wife to enjoy. But he also restricts that pleasure to marriage. Not to be outside of marriage. Not, and God didn't you know, restrict it to marriage to, to keep us from having fun. But to protect, protect us from hurting ourselves emotionally and physically. You see, God in his infinite wisdom and again creating us, he knows us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what we need. So she gives a serious warning here in verse 4. Again, she says, Promise me that you won't awaken love until the time is right. That is, until it's within marriage. Fornication or adultery affects the enjoyment and the attitudes of romance. Lifelong sexual satisfaction and contentment and pleasure and enjoyment is enjoyed the most with, with, again, with your spouse only. And you see, commitment is the key to a, to a marriage. Commitment is the key. So in, in finishing the book here, we see several things that God's love is based on in the marriage through His Word, the Bible. God's Word tells us why love is so powerful <clears throat> between a husband and a wife. Most of us want to, be, to, to experience an intoxicating love relationship with our spouse. But many times we just don't know where to start. But chapter 8 here gives us what we need to know. And that is how to stay committed. How to stay committed. And man, if we would learn this early in our marriage, early in life, we would, exp- we would save ourselves a whole lot of problems later on. Marriage today seems to be based on Feelings. We talked about this last week. Feelings. No, as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm feeling it, as long as I'm feeling, you know, uh, uh, happy with my spouse, as long as I, I, I feel the love for my spouse. But listen to what God says about, um, about commitment, about making a vow. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, four verses 4 through 6. It says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. 
Pay what you have vowed, because it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Anybody who marries without being committed to being faithful to their spouse for the rest of their life, no matter the circumstances, shouldn't get married. God does not take divorce as lightly as a lot of people think, including Christians. Listen to his opinion of divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Malachi says to the people, You cover the Lord's, or I should say to the men. Malachi is speaking to the men. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he's not paying any attention to your offering. And he doesn't accept them with pleasure. And you cry out, why? Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Malachi says, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows that you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth, because he says, I hate divorce. Those are God's words. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife, he says, is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of hosts. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. You see, the men were crying out to God. They were upset because God wasn't responding to their prayers. He wasn't responding to their crying and to their worship. And Malachi tells them, the reason is that, men, you've been unfaithful to your wives. And the guys don't understand that, 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 that God has placed the wife in a very vulnerable position, if you will. And that is to trust God through her husband's hands. And boy, we, we fail so much. And yet that's where he's placed the wife under, again, the headship of the, of, the, of the husband. And so God, knowing that, he watches out for her. You know, the, as a husband, we cannot treat our, treat our wives treacherously and, and then pray and, and, and act all holy and, and worship and think God's going to hear my prayer. He says, no, I've seen how you've been treating your wife. First Peter 3, 7 says this, the New Living Translation. He says, in the same way, in speaking of, first he spoke about how the wives should live with their husbands. And then he says, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is, she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. God has always been... And always will be a witness of what's going on in your marriage. He was at your wedding. (laughs) He heard the vows that you made. He heard the promises that you made to each other and to him. You can't deal treacherously and be unfaithful to your wife uh, and expect God's blessings. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, that is, permanently to his wife. That is, it's faithfulness to the end. And then Solomon gives us several reasons for faithful commitment. Let's begin with the first part of verse 5. And it says, notice this, verse 5. This, now, the person speaking is a relative 
or an observer speaking to the loving couple. It says in the first part of verse 5, Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? In other words, who is this coming in from the desert leaning upon her lover? This is a picture of oneness and unity. You see, the observer that was speaking out, it says they couldn't recognize one from the other. They were so close together. He said, who is this coming, one leaning upon the other? You see, they were in the flesh. They were, they were one in the flesh and, and in their surroundings. And we just read in Genesis 22, 24, that they shall become one flesh. And in this picture, the observer could not recognize who it was because they were so close together. Nobody thought of them as being apart from each other. In other words, wherever Solomon went, she went, and vice versa. You couldn't invite the one without inviting the other. Today, there's such a lack of oneness in marriage. And, 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 many, and that, can, that can be in different ways. I'm amazed at how many times they will take separate vacations. They have separate bank accounts. Your car, my car. Your friends, my friends. He does his thing, she does her thing. That's not faithful commitment. That's dangerous. Marriage calls a person to a oneness of identity with another person. You see, it's the merging of two lives into one. And Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, you know, at, at the marriages that I officiate with, I, I have the, 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 the wife uh, repeat this, this verse. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. This is faithful commitment. And then in the second half of verse 5, again, the one speaking uh, this is a, 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 um, an idea of, uh, from Adam Clark, a Bible commentator. Uh, the one speaking here reminds them of their youth, and their, uh, their youth and their family roots. He says in the second part of verse 5, I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. He says, I aroused you under the apple tree where your mother gave birth, gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Now, they were now grown-ups and happily married, but still connected to and the offspring of their families. Or, as Adam Clark says, it could be understood of the following circumstances. That Solomon found her once asleep under an apple tree and woke her up. And this happened to be the very place where her mother who was taken in an untimely labor before the child was due, had, been brought, had brought her into the world. And here's Solomon in his fondness and familiarity you know, of the area recalls these little incidents to her, to, uh, to her memory, to remember these things. He asked her to make him a seal on her heart and arm in verses 6 through 7, which speaks in strong words of a life of commitment. Look at verses 6 through 7 now. Now the Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon, is speaking to her husband, Mr. Solomon. Look at verses 6 and 7. She says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. 
jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are, are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be totally or utterly despised. So Mr. Solomon, I'm sorry, Mrs. Solomon says to Mr. Solomon here, she says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now, to understand this, a seal is a sign in that day, a seal is a sign of ownership and protection. And it speaks of an intimate commitment. Seals in Solomon's time were a sign of ownership, possession, and relationship, as we see in Genesis 38. She wanted to be sealed to his heart. She wanted him to be totally connected to her body, soul, and spirit, inseparable. And again, that's what it says in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verses uh, uh, 23 through 25. They become one. Also, sealed to her arm here means letting everybody know, hey, Solomon belonged to her. And, it, and if, if anybody had any, even the slightest idea of approaching him, it's back off. He's mine. When you, have a, when you have another person's seal, it's like having a blank check. You have total access to all that they have. We see that example in Esther chapter 3, verse 10. It says, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. If something was stamped in those days with the king's signet, hey, it couldn't be reversed. It couldn't be undone. It was a forever deal. The heart is the source of affections. The arm is the source of strength. So she wants to be closer to his heart than anybody else. And you know what? That is fundamentally important in order for a relationship to be what it should be. If anyone other than your wife or your husband, holds that place in your heart. Your commitment to your spouse is weak. And you know what? You're at risk to temptation and potential problems. Again, in verses 6 through 7, New Living Translation says, For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. You see, her words in verses 6 through 7 suggest a strong commitment to her husband. Their love brought them together. And it, was, it would be their love that would keep them together. The death and the grave can't be broken. The death and the grave can't be broken. Neither can their love. A husband and a wife They're not envious of each other, but they are jealous over one another. And and that jealousy is powerful. Notice it says here, it is a most vehement flame. At the end of verse 6, it says, its flames are flames flames of fire, a most vehement love. Now, a a most vehement love literally says a flame of Yahweh. That love is like the fire of God. You can't put that fire out. Godly jealousy does not mean that you're smothering your partner or controlling them and that, they're free, and that you're taking their freedom or that you're making them do just what you want them to do. God is a jealous God and He only wants what rightfully belongs to Him. 
Jealousy includes a strong desire to keep others from taking away what God has given you. God is, a je- God is jealous for us because He created us. He prepared us. I'm sorry, He created us and, and he, you know, he made us. He purchased us with the blood of His Son. We belong to Him because He created us. But Satan is always trying to take us away from Him as we learned this morning. Satan's always trying to tempt us, tempt us to, 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 to you know, get us to mess up. Commitment means hanging in there. It means persevering through the most difficult times. And again, it says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. In other words, a man who tried to buy love would be scorned and rejected. And by speaking this way, the king and his wife confirmed their everlasting love for one another. The bride uses this picture of a fire. She says like a, like a, a most vehement flame. And she says that such love can't be put out by, wire, by fire and it's not for sale. All the money in the world can't buy my love. I'm committed to my husband, to my spouse. No amount of money could buy the love that you have for your spouse or is worth destroying your marriage or your family. No job, no career, no goals are worth losing your spouse no matter what anybody tells you. No fling, no affair is worth destroying your marriage and family. No special interest or pursuit is worth damaging your relationship with your spouse. Hold on tightly to the precious gift you've been given. And don't let yourself become careless or negligent about your marriage. In other words, no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter what circumstance and situation hits your marriage, choose, choose to hang on and go through it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. Love never fails. The fire is never meant to go out. Just like nothing separates us from the love of Christ. And just like nothing separates us from the love of Christ, nothing should separate us from each other. That's the commitment we are to make to each other. And when troubles come and they seem overwhelming, what happens is a lot of couples, they run away. They run away. They run off to the divorce courts. Instead, make the commitment to run to each other and to the cross when tragedy or trouble hits. Be there for each other. Comfort each other. Help each other through the tough times. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. And that threefold cord is you, your spouse, and Jesus Christ. When Jesus is a part of that marriage, an intimate part of that marriage, it will not be broken. 
And a marriage can survive the most difficult circumstances and situations if, if they are both faithfully committed to each other. But the problem today is that people aren't committed to making a marriage work. People are always looking or seem to be always looking for a way out. They don't really want to do what it takes to make a marriage. Marriages work. Marriages just don't happen. You make them happen. What they want a lot of times is instant relief. Like taking a pill or a flu shot or whatever. Make the problem go away. Tell me tomorrow it's going to be all better. But like I, I've, I've told several couples in, in the earlier years, when I, again, like as I said, I used to do a lot of marriage counseling. And that couple would come in. And they're both devastated and they feel it's over, it's done. But they say, we want to make it work. I said, well, how bad do you want to make it work? Because it's not going to be easy. I said, I, told, I, I can't give you a pill. I can't give you a magic potion and tell you to take it. And by the time you get home, you're going to be all better. I said, it's like, it's like going to the doctor when you know something's wrong. You're feeling lousy. You want to feel better. You know there's something wrong. So what do you do? You go to the doctor. And then the doctor tells you, well, this is what's wrong. And he says, he prescribes the medicine to you. And he says, you need to take all of this medicine until you get better. And if you don't take it all, you know, you're not going to get better. So he writes you out a prescription. He hands it to you. Now, guess what? The doctor's job is done. Guess where the rest of the work is involved? You. Once he's handed you the prescription, guess what? It's your responsibility now to go get the medicine, take the medicine. No matter how bad that medicine is and how much you don't like it, if you don't take it, you're not going to get better. But that's what happens in a lot of marriage counseling. They don't like the medicine. When the Bible says, go and love your wife, love your husband. Well, I don't feel like I did. I didn't tell you. The Bible didn't tell you that if you felt like it. He said, it's a command. And then they start to, well, well I, you know what? If you don't want to counsel, I'm done. There's no sense in coming and getting counseling and hearing what you need to do in order to get better. There's no need in going to a doctor, not listening to what he tells you, take that prescription, throw it away, and I'm done. Hey, you can't blame the doctor for not getting it. You can't blame the counselor if he's giving you godly counsel. It's not going to happen overnight. Because for the most part, it took probably many years to come to that place where one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm done. I don't want to live like this anymore. So it's not going to get fixed overnight. It's not going to get better tomorrow. They expect a quick and automatic satisfaction guarantee without any effort, without any patience, without any work, without any problems. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things. It bears all things. A truly faithful commitment endures, and it endures all kinds of problems, trials, distresses, and afflictions. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, and love endures all things, and it bears all things. 
It bears all things. It endures all things. It never fails. And all through the Bible, we're told over and over again to love as God has loved us. To love as He has loved us. And that is a steadfast love. And it's not, best, it's not based on how, how good I am or my behavior or, or you know, anything that has to do with me. It has to do with God's you know, unconditional love. Love with a love that's untiring, unwavering, unchanging, unconditional. No strings attached. Way too many of us give up way too easily. Our love grows weaker and weaker and under pressure and and unhappiness. But God's love stays. It continues to go on no matter what kind of problems there are to try to quench it. In John 13, 1, I love this. John says, Jesus loved them, speaking of the disciples, to the end. And Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. But you know what? He still washed his feet. Can you imagine? He knows that Judas is going to go and, 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 and betray him, which will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Jesus knew it, and yet he still washed his feet. He loved them to the end. And know this for sure. The pressure and the attacks will come, but God's love can withstand them all. God still loves us when He's been severely hurt. And God's love can survive the most heartbreaking circumstances and, gets, and it, that heart gets stronger through it all. Ask God to give you His love for your spouse. It's priceless and it can never be bought. You can only receive it freely and thankfully. The next thing that we learn, that character Character is key to commitment. In verses 8 through 9 now, we see that Mrs. Solomon's brothers speak. Look at verses 8 through 9. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver, and if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. In the New Living Translation, it reads like this. We have a little sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous, like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. This verse speaks of personal character, which is important to commitment. When a a person has no integrity, commitments don't mean very much to them. Those commitments aren't kept. They're not fulfilled. You can make a vow to your spouse. You can say all the right things. But if there's no integrity, if you have no character, that vow is pretty much meaningless. And and probably sooner or later, it's going to be broken. It's important what a person is inside. It's more important to commitment than all the outward beauty of the person. If our heart's not honorable, we're usually weak in our commitments. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 5 through 7, speaking to the, to the woman. He said, it's the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart is the inner person. 
You see the outer person, but he's speaking about the hidden person of the heart, the inner person, the inner character, the inner attitude. He said, with the incorruptible beauty, incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Commitment has to come from the heart because that's where the toughest battles are fought. Commitment has to come from the heart and based on moral integrity and sound character. Solomon's wife's character was developed at home. That's what verses 8 and 9 are about. When she was young, the family felt that they had, the resp- had resp- a responsibility to her. The brother decided that if she was a wall, then all they should do is improve on it, on what she already is. That is, you know, adding silver to it, building a, a, sal- a silver tower upon that wall. They would just make it more beautiful, that character, that integrity that, they, that she had. Being a wall spoke of her strength of character. She was like a wall. You couldn't break through to her. You couldn't break her down. But if she was easily seduced or seemed to be at risk as she grew up, then they'd block that door with a cedar bar. Is she going to be a wall or a door? Can she resist temptations that come her way or will she give in to them? Notice that the family was concerned about her character. This showed the importance and the involvement of the family when it comes to developing character. They felt they were responsible for her and they were willing to do whatever was needed to protect her integrity. And then her integrity was made through her own choices. Look at verse 10 now. Here Mrs. Solomon is speaking. I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. She says, I was a virgin like a wall. And now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he's delighted with what he sees. And what she's saying here is that she's mature and she's ready for marriage. She chose to stay pure before she got married. And when she was young and growing up, she chose to be a wall. Showing that she had moral integrity before she married Solomon. She is an example for every young girl to follow. Solomon was drawn to her by her moral purity. She said, when my lover looked at me, he's delighted with what he sees. What he knows about her. Her character, her integrity, her morality. In Solomon's eyes, she was a woman of quality and purity who brought peace and not trouble to his heart. Faithful commitment means total commitment. That you make yourself totally available to your spouse in every way. You don't make major plans without considering your, your spouse. You don't make major decisions without including your spouse. Or, or knowing, uh, making sure how it will affect your spouse. Solomon's wife added this as well. She said this, notice in verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. Solomon has a vineyard, she says, at Baal Haman, which he leases out to tenant farmers, and each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. She seemed to be asking Solomon here to reward her brothers who took care of her when she was young and growing up. 
You see, that was, that was the custom to reward the keeper of your vineyards from the profits that you made from their hard work. So she's just asking Solomon to recognize the importance and the value of what he got from her as a bride and to appreciate what her family did in making all of that possible. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, remember she said she was angry at her brothers because they made her work hard in the vineyards out in the hot sun. Here in verses 8 and 9, they set strong standards for her moral behavior. And she's saying, in a sense, pay them for what you've received because of what they did for me when I was at home. It all paid off. She was now grateful for the stand that her family took toward premarital sex when she was young. And now she's reaping the blessings and the benefits in her marriage. Again, a great lesson for young people. A lot of times, you know, when when our children are young, they think that that we're being overprotective, we're being unreasonable, we're being hard, and just plain old party poopers. We don't want them to, to live or have any fun. But later in life, if you follow your, your parents' advice, it will bless you with real joy. Your body will be a worthy vineyard. Verse 12, she says to her husband, verse 12, she says to Solomon, But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver, but I will give 200 pieces to those who care for its vines. Verse 12 reads, My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, 200. She was saying Solomon has the right to do whatever he wants with his own possessions, and she was speaking, and she was, she was, she, she with hers, speaking of her own person. You may have a lot of vineyards, Solomon, but I'm the best vineyard that you have. Verse 13, she continues to speak. Notice, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Notice now how faithful commitment ends here. She says in verse 13, Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. Solomon wants to hear her voice. He wants her companionship. And then she responds in verse 14 as we close. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She closes with these words. Come away, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. What she's saying here is hurry, honey, and come home. Mountains of spices speaks of her sexuality. It emphasized, it's emphasized by spices that would flow from her. What husband wouldn't run home to be with a wife like her? The words make haste show how important sexual love and romance are to marriage. We shouldn't be, un, we shouldn't be uninterested uncaring, lazy, negligent when it comes to romance and sex, nor slow to respond to our partner's desires. It's time to make haste, she says here, verse 14. It's time to make haste. What a wonderful goal to have for a husband and a wife. Sorry, I have to hurry. I need to get home to my spouse. Here's something as we finish this awesome little book here's something for husbands and wives to think about wives does your husband look forward to coming home at the end of the day husbands 
Does your wife look forward to you coming home at the end of the day or wish you were working overtime? Are you the kind of spouse your spouse would die for or just puts up with? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, what an amazing book the Song of Solomon is. In reading it, sometimes we have to look at the cover and make sure it says the Holy Bible. It's such a wonderful book because it teaches about all the things that we need to know about life, about marriage, about raising a family, about finances, godly principles, salvation. Father, it's the book of life. Everything is there that we need to know. Father, help us to understand that. And God, help us to believe it. Again, Lord, we are living in critical times. People are putting down the word of God. Literally. Physically and mentally, God. More and more are deciding that it's not relevant to today. That we have to become more like society, more like our culture. That we have to be more open-minded. We have to be more tolerant of sin, which is being called normal today or contemporary. Father, help us to know beliefs come and go. Beliefs change, but principles never do. And your word is the principles of life for life. God, help us to not get caught up in this frenzied culture believing that we have to accept what's being deemed normal and help us God to keep in mind that the majority doesn't mean that it's right over 200 over 2 million people existed in Noah's day and when he warned that the flood was coming when he warned that judgment was coming the majority did not get on the boat out of all those millions of people only eight were saved and it's going to be the same today because people have their eyes on what's popular what's trending and we're caving into the pressure 
We're giving in to the seasons and the times. We're putting down the Bible today. And we're believing the scientific reports overriding God. So Lord, help us to take a stand for righteousness, for holiness. We thank you, Lord, for being our God and for being so good to us. Lord, we give you glory and we give you honor. We thank you for our salvation, Lord. So help us now, God, to live each day as if you were coming that day because you very well could. So Lord, bless your people. Watch over them this week. And may your face shine upon them. And Lord, may we meet again as we come together next week for our study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.